Ladies and gentlemen, tonight we have a heavyweight matchup for the ages. In this corner, weighing in at negative basis points, the master of economic disaster, the destroyer of fortunes, the king of declining GDP, I give you deflation. And in this corner, the reigning champion, three-time winner of the 1970s business cycle smackdown, the runaway train of monetary policy, I give you inflation. Welcome to the Jeff Effect. Well, wasn't that exciting? Ladies and gentlemen, we are going to be... We've been teasing this topic now for about, you know, four or five different podcasts. But this is an important topic, and you're going to be hearing a crapload about this topic in the coming days. Because as soon as we get by all the hoopla and crisis and pain and suffering of the COVID-19 crisis... The media is going to immediately jump to economic disaster. Everything from this is the next Great Depression to we are going to have runaway inflation. And they're going to say both sides of the coin because they don't want to be wrong. So they'll take both sides at the same time and then claim they were right no matter what happens. But let's get some truth. We're going to talk about the difference between inflation and deflation. And more importantly, more importantly, why you never want deflation and why sometimes a little inflation is okay. I know it doesn't sound good, but let's start by talking about what inflation and deflation are. Because we all think we know, but maybe we all don't. Maybe there's a few of us out there who, who don't understand what this means. Okay, so generally speaking... Inflation and deflation. We always just use the word inflation all the time. And if inflation is negative, it's technically deflation. So really, it's inflation and deflation, not just inflation. But we economists use both words. So inflation. Inflation is when, it's broadly defined, we've defined it as a basket of regular goods and services that has a prices overall going up going up. So let's start by take let's start by doing this. Let's do let's do a little bit of Zen economics here. Zen economics. I want you to think in terms of your breath. Just take a moment and inhale. That sounds like I'm getting all touchy feely and new age crystally smooth jazz Kenny G on you, but but it's not. It's not what I'm doing. I'm doing something else entirely. So just just stick with me on this. If you're on the treadmill and you're exercising, this is going to be easy. Otherwise, just sit there, close your eyes, and inhale. Okay. Now, exhale deeply. So, when you inhale, you're inflating, you're, you're filling your lungs with air, and it's an important thing, and it gives, that's how you get oxygen. Oxygen gives your body energy. Think of it that way. 
Inflation is not just about raising prices. This also is an allegory to what causes inflation. It's always the amount of money. When you have extra money in an economy, things pick up speed. People spend more money, demand for goods and services, and the demand for more money increases. So you are speeding up and giving energy to the economy. Deflation is like you're exhaling. You're taking money out of the economy. And when you take money out of the economy, things get tired, things get slowed, slowed down, things, things become less expensive because people aren't buying things. There's no competition for goods and services, so prices go down. People tend to hold on to the cash because the cash is worth more than the stuff that people want them to buy. Think of it that way, all right? One has energy, one does not. Okay, so the, the, the problem of inflation and deflation, believe it or not, was, was kind of a mystery. Lots, we had lots of theories about what caused these things. And then, you know, late, in, late 1950s and the 1960s, a school of thought in economics came about called monetism. What's the big idea? Monetism. And one of the biggest proponents of this, and really the, the guy that we all look to, his name was Milton Friedman, one of my personal heroes. <laughs> And, and he was really, he, he had the theories and, and, and the math behind his theories to prove that inflation was caused by too much money. There was, there was, you want to have a balance between the amount of money that's available for people to buy with and, uh, the, and the actual stuff that people want to buy. You want to have a balance there. You think that just have lots of money around. Well, if you throw lots of money in the economy and it's not balanced with the, the, uh, with the goods and services being produced and the goods and services being desired, then you get inflation because people have just too much money lying around. So it's like a problem. But we, we touched on this topic in previous podcasts. The opposite, tr- the opposite is true, right, in, uh, in deflation. Deflation occurs when there's just not enough money. And when there's not enough money, you, you hold on to your cash, you don't spend it. And so the GDP tends to go down because people, and people spend money slower and more methodically and, and things all kind of slow down. And, and he actually proved this and he was proved right. We had a tremendous, you know, um, what they called stagflation in the 1970s through across three business cycles where the economy was not growing, but inflation was crazy and out of control so prices were going up and the economy wasn't expanding so what that proved and, and it, it, g- it gave credence to Milton Friedman's theories and it, it helped prove him right that the problem was there was too much money compared to the goods and services being demanded and then once that once Paul Volcker corrected that in the early 1980s um, then all of a sudden the economy balanced, inflation was squashed, and then we had a roaring economic recovery after that without serious inflationary pressures. So he did that. So remember, in a previous, if you're a regular listener, you know, this is only episode nine, so there's not a whole lot to listen to, but in the first, in four of the first episodes, I, I talk about different instances where inflation and deflation occurred, and it's worth kind of going back and reviewing that. So if you remember the 1970s, was a U.S. inflationary cycle, modest inflation by world standards, but still annoying to everybody who was trying to buy stuff. Uh, but also remember the, the lesson of the, when we talked about the demonetization of silver with the analogy of the Wizard of Oz, and it happened in the late 1800s. And there was not enough money. So you had people losing the value of their land and their farms and their cattle in the West because there just wasn't enough money because silver used to be money and now silver wasn't money anymore. And since you couldn't conduct business in silver, 
all of a sudden there was just not enough money to do transactions, so people held on to it. And then uh, remember, just a couple episodes ago, we talked about the hyperinflation uh, in Venezuela that's going on right, or just just been going on for the last five or six years, because they're printing money like crazy, even as the economy is declining. So we, we covered these things. So. To accept, if you need a review, send me a direct, you know, a direct message, a DM to, to and, and I will explain this to you. I'm happy to give you a little private consultation on this, but it is always monetary policy, the amount of money supply that's out there, that is the ma- are the main drivers for inflation and deflation. Okay, so we have these things, but. Really, you know, the Fed operates these days because we've learned all these lessons, you know, really, we've been learning economic lessons for the last couple hundred years, and we're, we try not to make the same mistake more than once, though we, we still do that sometimes. The, the reality is we try not to make the same mistake more than once. We keep learning lessons, right? But what we do know is, is we, have, we, have, we know that inflation is bad, but deflation is worse. So we have a policy, and it's called target inflation rate, right? And that seems counterintuitive, but it's, it's true. And it, it's, not, it's not some mysterious, mystical way to steal people's money. That's not what it is. The targeted inflation rate set by the Fed that is specifically designed to give us wiggle room, all right? Because deflation is really, really, really bad. Well, why is deflation really, really, really bad? Well, picture this. If you're sitting there and you, you have a you have property and your property is worth $100,000 and a deflationary environment, tomorrow it's worth $95,000. And the day after that, it's worth $90,000. It's because the value of money is going up. There's not enough money to go around. So people have to, you know, have to choose what to spend the limited amount of money that's available, whether it's via cash or loans or credit utilities, it's, it, any combination they're in. The, there's not enough money to spend on everything that people want to buy, so they're allocating their mo- the same amount of money across more goods and services, so the price of each of those goods and services has to go down. So if you don't have enough money in the economy, the economy starts slowing down. Fewer goods and services are produced, the GDP continues to drop, and your house is a very bad investment. And you know what? If your house is going down in value every single year because of deflation, what bank is going to give you a loan or a mortgage to buy that house? And if you do, the interest rates can have to be greater than the anticipated deflation rate because that house is going to be declining in value over time. And it's not just because you have to maintain it and keep it up. I mean, those are costs you already have. With deflation in an economy, your house is getting cheaper every single day you own it. And because people know that, who would in their right mind would own a house? And if, if that's true as well, then rent rates are going down too. Who in their right mind would own an apartment building? So, so you see, you, do you kind of grasp what I'm hinting at here? Deflation destroys economies. Stable money, I mean, ideally, ideally, inflation would be almost zero or zero. We'd have the amount of money, we'd, we'd strike a perfect balance. And every single day, there would be the exact right amount of money in the economy needed to conduct all the tr- perfect amount of transactions that people wanted to do. But you know what? That never happens. It's very complicated, and, and the economy is a very dynamic and complicated thing, so it's always moving. You can never be exactly right. Please hold for a very important message.
message. You can never be exactly right. So what the Fed does, this is simplified greatly, is they target a, a low inflation rate, usually about 2.5%. What does this do? One. Okay. Um, it's insurance wiggle room to stave off deflation. So if you're the Federal Reserve and you're targeting 2.5% inflation, and that inflation rate drops to 2%, to 1.5%, to 1%, you know you've got a deflationary problem. You need to inject money before it goes negative, because if it goes negative, serious economic harm gets done, and it gets done really, really fast. Two. The next thing is, in a mild inflationary environment of, say, anywhere, we can argue on the amount, right? The Fed picks like, they change their target every once in a while, but let's just say that their target's 2.5%. I'm willing to argue with any of you whether it should be 1.5% or 3.5% or, you know, that's a detail. The concept is, is that a low targeted inflation rate has, has these benefits, right? Okay. Um, the next one is it's, it provides a continuous and persistent incentive to respend money earlier rather than later. So let me give you an example of that. If you know, if you're thinking about uh, stocking your fridge with T-bone steaks, actually I'd go with I'd go with ribeyes. It's a better steak. So let's say ribeyes. If you're thinking about stocking up your freezer with ribeye steaks, and you're debating when not to do that, you spend hundred dollars. Okay. Well, you can spend hundred dollars, right, and get ten pounds of ribeyes today. But if you know the price is going up tomorrow, you're more incentivized to buy today. And that's what a little bit of inflation in the system does. It lets people, gives people a small, when it's targeted and slow, a, a persistent, continuous incentive to increase the velocity of money. Because economies thrive when there's more activity. The more, the more times money is turned over and flipped around, the better off, the more economic activity there is, all right? So the, uh, uh, the fact that there's a little bit of inflation gives a persistent incentive to spend money sooner rather than later, right? Now, three. that's the other benefit. It's good for holders of assets. Then you think, oh, I don't hold any assets. I'm just a working man like you, Jeff. Yeah, well, I don't hold a lot of assets. I don't. But you know what? You, you might own a few, right? For example, this is really good for homeowners, now, the average price of a home increase in an urban environment like Silicon Valley probably is increasing in price you know, way beyond what is rational or reasonable. But on average across the nation, the prices of homes, of existing homes, increase just a little bit better than the inflation rate. So, you know, on average, long term, and there's, there's exceptions and certain markets go crazy and certain markets get depressed. I'm talking about the average across the economy is that because there's some inflation built into the system, your home will be worth more tomorrow, a little bit, than it is today, right? It goes up in value just a little bit every single day. Now, this does a couple things. This is good for you as the homeowner. In fact, it, you know, uh, the average uh, lower middle class person, right, um, when they retire, they usually have a small retirement fund, a little IRA or 401k, but it's usually just a small amount, maybe, you know, between fifty and $200,000. They have their Social Security, and they have their home. Their home is either paid for, or their home was appreciated enough in value. And so that becomes, it, you know, the, the, the purchased home is not only the American dream for lots of reasons, but 
you know, as, decade, as decades pass, for most people, it becomes one of the few retained appreciating assets that they have, right? A few stocks and a few bonds. They have their Social Security. If they're lucky, they might have a little bit of a pension. And then they have their retirement funds, their IRAs, their 401ks. All these things, you know, Social Security is just increasing at the cost of living, right? Uh, your 401k and your house, because there's inflation built in the system and other reasons, they are appreciating assets. So over the course of your life, they're worth more. And they usually appreciate just above the inflation rate. So your net gain is there. So this, so this is something that, that's good for everybody. Now, if you also own a big pile of gold and a big pile of iron ore and uh, 17,000 acres in the middle of Texas, inflation helps you a lot. So yes, inflation for anybody who holds an asset, whether you are a, a lower middle class person or uh, holding a few assets or you are you know, uh, Ted Turner or Donald Trump or Mark Cuban or any other billionaire guy out there, it's good for your assets as well. It helps all assets improve. And think about this. Four. This is actually good for the banks because this, if, they're, if they have a lo through the loan on your house, the house is continuing to increase in value. It makes it a good and secure investment for them. And because it's a good and secure investment for them, the interest rates on mortgages are lower than they otherwise might be. Now, if it was a depreciating asset, if we were in deflationary environment or a static environment, they would have more risk because the asset would not be increasing in value, so they'd have more risk. They'd have to charge more interest for that risk. So believe it or not, believe it or not, the fact that there's a little bit of inflation in an economy actually lets interest rates on real, real estate and firm and a commodity assets it lets the interest rates be a tad bit lower than they otherwise would be. Now, this is just some of the reasons. But if you flip this argument around, these are all the same reasons why deflation is bad, right? That's a kind of an economic primer. They, you know, they took us, it took us a full month to cover this topic in macroeconomics. Uh-huh. I'm, uh, I'm hoping that this 15-minute description did a reasonable job of getting you past the basics, right? Um, so let's talk about this. Okay. Money supply. Back to money supply. The Treasury and the Federal Reserve, they take and help control inflation and ensure the health of the economy by managing the money supply. And one of the things about the money supply is that there's a multiplier effect, right? Now that means that if they if they'll put say a, a billion dollars into the economy, it's not just a billion dollars because that money is either spent on something, or it's loaned for to for somebody to do something right. And that whatever that is, so if somebody spends it, that's economic activity. If it's loans, so somebody builds a building, or somebody builds a or a city builds a highway or something, it's 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 stimulating the economy. That's economic activity. But then two things take hold two things take hold. One is called the propensity to spend versus the propensity to save. Propensity to spend versus propensity to save. So people, believe it or not, they have a tendency, if they earn, you know, whatever, they earn some money, they either save some in savings or they put it in their 401k or they buy a bond, they, they, they save some portion of it. It should be a little bit more than it is in my opinion, but that, that, that's just, a, it's just you know, my opinion. The fact is, 
some percent of that money is saved, somewhere between three and seven percent is saved by everybody. The rest is spent. And when you spend that money, so said another way, so you get a hundred bucks, you're gonna spend 95 bucks of that, and you might save five, right? Well, that 95 bucks gets spent, and then 5%, and that 5% gets saved, and then that's like $90.50 that gets spent again. So money gets spent over and over and over again, right? It's the money multiplier effect. Another thing is, if it's a loan, let's say that you are, um, you're, you, built a, you built a new office building, you took $10 million, you built an office building. Well, over time, you're paying, you're making payments on that loan, right? In fact, you know, if, if you have, uh, you know, if you, if you have a $10 million loan, you're, you're spending maybe twenty dollars or $30,000 a month on payments, paying that loan back. Well, as you pay that loan back, the money's loaned out again, right? So it's not just the $10 million that was injected to loan to you to, give, to build your property. As you pay that loan back, that money is then reloaned out back into the economy by the bank. So it, it multiplies itself. It's a money multiplier effect. And that's why a little bit of money can go a long way. A little bit of leverage in the economy can really take things strongly in uh, a new direction, in the right directions, or sometimes the wrong directions. But, all right, so now, what does all that mean? Okay, now we come to the current situation and the damnable COVID-19 crisis that we're all suffering through together, me included, um, and the economic shutdown and the literally trillions of dollars of money shoved into the economy. It's a lot of money. We, we talked about that, right? A lot of money. And because of all this, you know, and again, I, I firmly expect the media to take both sides of this equation. They're going to they're they're claim we're going into a huge de depression. At the same time, they're going to put on experts that say that we're going to have this huge inflationary spike, spike and take prices out of control and everything's going to go to hell because of that. So they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna show you experts that claim both sides of it. And then two years from now, they're going to just look back with selective memory and claim the ones that prove they were right, and they will forget about the ones they were wrong because they're going to try to play both sides of the coin. That's what they always do, right? When you never have to produce anything like the media, when you never have to actually deliver any real results, you just spend your time making yourself look good and getting your hair done by expensive hairdressers. So what they're going to do is put both these guys on there, and they'll be talking about, one of the things they're talking about is that we're in for this, we're in for inflation. Inflation's going to kill us now. Four trillion dollars, three trillion dollars, and you can't do that without, this is going to destroy the world. And they'll even quote my hero, Milton Friedman, Milton Friedman proved that this is going to destroy us all with inflation. And they'll be quoting him incorrectly and all that stuff, because let me tell you that you don't have to look very far back to understand that these guys don't know what the freaking hell they're talking about, okay? So, you just have to think back 10 years. Remember the Great Recession? That was the Great Recession, right? That was it. That was the, that was the last, that was the last, you know, apocryphy. That was the last, you know, you know, end days. The world was going to be destroyed. And at the time, you know, when, when they were, uh, when, when Ben Bernanke was injecting trillions of dollars, not as many as now, but it was, like the first, the first issuance was almost a trillion dollars of stimulus in the economy, and then there was some another half a trillion dollars of stimulus, I think, at some point in there. When he was doing that, 
I, you know, everybody was on the same bandwagon. Everybody said that inflation was going to go crazy and that we were repeating the mistakes of the 1970s and the hair was running around with their hair on fire again and it was just going to destroy us all. But, but, inflation didn't happen. Say what? It didn't. And there's reasons why inflation didn't happen. So get your head out of right now. We're all focused on what we're doing right now. But what I want you to do is just think back 10 years. Think back to the financial crisis, the bursting of the subprime housing market. Everything's falling apart, and trillions of dollars was flown, was, was, was just shoved into the economy. And it literally increased the money supply three or four-fold almost overnight. And what happened? Well, we... We didn't go into a great recession, and we didn't have any inflation. Inflation has been, you know, relatively tame. It's bounced around a little bit, but it, the big, scary inflation that everybody was predicting because of that rescue package never materialized. Why? Well, several reasons, and, you know, people will be, we're going to be, you know, we economists and crazy people like me, we're going to be thinking about that and analyzing that till the end of time, because it is brain candy, and uh, if, you, if you're interested in human behavior and, and how people move and how markets move and how people spend their money, that stuff's interesting to me, so I'll be thinking about it forever. But we kind of all kind of agree that we didn't have inflation after the money injection in the Great Recession for a couple of important reasons. Let me give them to you. One. The first thing is the banks hoarded a lot of the cash. Now, we, we wanted them to do is, is what Ben Bernanke wanted them to do. And he even says that this is the one thing he didn't do perfectly. I, I, first of all, give him applause, raise a glass, and, to, to, and drink to Ben Bernanke because he did a pretty dang good job uh, in the Great Recession, so, as it's so-called. But the banks were supposed to take, take the money and then immediately reloan it out to get it in the hands of businesses. But the paperwork didn't say the banks had to do that. So when the banks got the money, they just shorted up their own balance sheets. They turned that money around, and because and it was almost at zero interest, they turned it around and bought federal treasury bonds paying a higher interest and just sat there paying low interest, making a little bit more in interest, and they just got free money. Um, so because that money did not get at that portion of the money that the banks were kind of hoarding to shore up their balance sheets, because it didn't get out into the economy, it had a, had a net very, very low impact on the actual money supply. So no impact on money supply, no impact on inflation. Two. The next thing, and this is really important, and it's often overlooked, and I, and I actually get in, in deep arguments with friends and journalists and fe my fellow economists over this one, and I think people are starting to come my way on it, believe it or not. The financial crisis was a deflationary event. You had home prices that were falling to the floor, just just collapsing. You know, houses in certain markets, houses got you know decimated by more than fifty percent in value. You know, my hometown of Phoenix, Arizona, was one of them. It just got wiped out. Um, you know, Nevada was another one. Some of parts of California, Florida, got really really hurt. Anybody who had a standing inventory of homes, you know, really got hammered economically, um, and and it's because the prices fell. So remember, if money supply, if, if, if money supply dictates 
the inflation or deflation ultimately, and you're in an environment where prices are having a lot of downward pressure, deflation, and there's extra money supply that is inflationary, it tends to balance itself out a little bit if you strike the balance correctly. So what you're doing is you're artificially, by money supply, injecting some inflation into a deflationary cycle. It eases the pain. That makes sense, right? Tell me that makes sense. You just sit there for a second, nod your head and say, yes, Jeff, you're making sense. The next thing and the third thing that why there wasn't huge amounts of inflation after the financial crisis was because a lot of the stimulus cash was paid back to the Fed and the Treasury. And they took the money back out of circulation. So how do they do that? We, covered, we, we touched on this in a previous podcast, but it works like this. If, the, if you get a loan from the Federal Reserve and then, the Federal, and then you pay that loan back to the Federal Reserve, the money's coming back out of the economy. Makes sense, right? If you get a loan just straight from the bank, the money is going to be kind of going around in more circles, thus increasing, right, the, you know, multiplier effect of money, right? But if you've borrowed money from the Fed and you pay it back to the Fed, they just, they just make it go away and they take it back out of the economy. So since the money supply in that case, in the third point, it was a temporary increase in money supply, therefore it did not have a real inflationary impact on the economy. Get it? Okay. So three main reasons. All of the money paid to the banks, they hoarded some of it, so it didn't have any impact on inflation. The financial crisis was a deflationary event, so therefore a little bit of extra inflation actually helped balance things out. And finally, a lot of that stimulus cash was paid back to the Fed, so the money did not stay in the economy permanently. Right? And because of these things, I mean, you don't, don't just take my word for it. Let me, get, let me give you, I, you know, if you know, you know, the Oracle of Omaha, Warren Buffett, his right-hand guy is a guy named Charlie Munger. And just a couple months ago, at the start of all this crap, uh, Charlie Munger gave a speech. And here's what he said. Welcome back, everybody. Berkshire Hathaway's Vice Chairman Charlie Munger spoke at the annual meeting of the Daily Journal. That's the L.A. newspaper that he chairs. The 96-year-old uh, longtime business partner of Warren Buffett has seen a lot during his career, and now he says he is watching inflation closely and the actions of central banks. Regarding inflation, you know, the economists of the world thought they knew a lot more than they did. What has happened is weird that in response to the Great Recession, all the nations of the world have printed money like crazy and have bought all kinds of investment assets. And they've done things that nobody in the economics profession would have recommended on this scale even five or so years ago. And yet the inflation has been very low. I think we all have a lot to be modest about when we talk about economics. So, makes sense, right? Time for us all to have a little bit of humility. And, and every time you hear some screaming voice on any of the cable or broadcast news channels claiming that they know what's going on, whether or not they say we're having a Great Depression or whether they're saying we have an inflationary cycle that's going to end mankind as we know it, no matter what they say, 
nod your head, say, yeah, I remember what Jeff, Jeff, Jeff taught me. Time for economists to have a little bit more humility because they, these guys, these experts might not really know what's going on. They may not see all the bells and whistles and gears. They may not see all the levers being pulled. So take it with a grain of salt. So, what, so what's next? What do we do now? It's the new game show sweeping the nation. Who wants to be a trillionaire? <coughs> so that brings us to the $4 trillion question. Is are we setting ourselves up for another round of horrible, painful inflation? Well, the answer is it depends. And it's not, I know, it's a little lame, it's not very satisfactory, but, but here's the deal. The real question is this. Have Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin and Fed Chairman Jerome Powell and their respective teams done the math? How much money can be controlled to flow back out of the economy if we need it? And finally, how much deflationary pressure exists in this crisis compared to our other crises? Believe it or not, the most powerful, you know, you know, president is an important and powerful position, and he, he appoints these people. That's a lot of Ps. The president appoints these people, their, their positions of power. I can't say it again. But in reality, the most important people in the country right now, in the United States anyway, in every country, you know, mo most industrialized countries, they have their own version of a central banker. They have their own version of a finance minister or a treasury secretary. They've got somebody in this position. So every country, God, I love you all. Trust me, I love you all. I've traveled the world. I have friends in every major country in the world. I love you all. But in a large percentage, we're kind of, in one way, we're all on our own. And that's in this. In the United States, it depends if we have the right team in place. You know, they are scrambling, I believe, to the best of their ability to put together a rescue package to make sure that we don't have a great recession, we don't have another depression, we don't have another deflationary spike or inflationary spike, that they have a plan and a controlled way to get the money in and out of the economy so that it stimulates and creates, uh, it balances the deflationary pressures that are obviously going on right now and applies inflationary pressure where it deflates and they can pull that money back out of the economy if inflation gets out of control. It's just that simple. Are these guys going to do a good job? And and you know what? I hope so. They're smart guys. I know Steve. I know that last time we were very lucky that Ben Bernanke in, in the Great Recession ten years ago. We we're very lucky we had Ben Bernanke there because the guy's really smart and he's an expert on avoiding the big disasters. He literally, as we've said, he literally wrote the book. On, uh, on the Great Depression. So he knows what caused it. So he was the perfect guy for the job. And do, the question now is, do Jerome Powell and Steve Mnuchin and the rest of the economic team 
Do they have their hands firmly on the wheel? I got to believe, I mean, these guys, I got to believe that they're at least considering whether they hit the right balance or not. We'll see. Only history will tell us that. But I believe they're aware. They're not ignorant to the challenge. For all these people screaming about the Great Depression this or hyperinflation that, they've got to think about for a second that these guys aren't stupid. These guys are looking for exactly those two, prob- those two conditions and how to avoid them. And, and, there are, and if you think about how these things, some of the stimulus in, the, in these trillions of dollars that are flowing in the economy right now, some of them are grants. Some of them are loans. Sometimes they're talking about loans and they take currency. Uh, they take, I'm sorry, they take stocks or bonds or uh, you know, other uh, indenture securities against those companies in, in return for the bailout. Why? Precisely because if you take a security from a company when you give them some money, then you can sell that security back and take the money back out of the economy if you need to. So all the signs are there that these guys are aware of the both the inflationary risks and the deflationary risks. All the signs are there. They're aware of them. And so are they going to strike the perfect balance? Uh, nobody, Nobody's going to strike the perfect balance. Things are too in flux. The economy is too big. It's too complicated. But are they going to get close? I hope they do. I'm optimistic that they will. Is it going to be perfect? Again, nope. Are they going to do a good job? I think they already are. Can you smell what the Fed is cooking? So that's it. That's inflation and deflation. You know what? We've been talking, you know, we're talking a lot about economic issues, and I'm happy to do that all day long. It's one of the two passions of my life. My two passions, are, of course, are, you know, the science of human communication and messaging and economics. Those are my two biggest passions. And um, I'm, I've, I've studied them both, but they're both about human behavior. If you have any questions, follow-up questions, again, the best way for right now to get a hold of me fast is to DM me on Twitter. It's at jeffreyjhardy.com, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-J-H-A-R-D-Y, at Jeffrey J. Hardy, or fill out the contact form on the website at jeffeffect.com. That's it. We're going to get through this. I know we are because America's gotten through these things before. So that's it for now, folks. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. That's exactly right. You got it, Jeffrey. Your your, your maturity and and skills and, and learnings are there.